Well, good morning, everybody. It's so wonderful to see you here. For all those who are gathered on campus, uh, a special welcome to you. For those online, we're so thankful that you are joining us as well. Well, today, the title of this message is Forsaken for Us. Forsaken for Us. And we'll be in Mark 15, verses 21 to 47. This is the second to final sermon in our series that began back on March 6th. So by the time we're done next week, we will have spent eight months in the Gospel of Mark in 2022. And so when we're done next week, I think I'm going to have withdrawal symptoms. Right? That's how I'm feeling right now. I don't know what I'm going to do afterward. Uh, I'll have some uh, sadness because we're closing out the book of Mark. But it's been just an amazing series for me personally. I've grown in so many ways, and I thank God for the growth that I've experienced, and I trust that you have as well. And these last two messages, oh, there's so much truth uh, waiting for us. And this past week, I was kind of browsing through all the, the sermon titles in this series, and I went back to our very first message. It was titled, The Beginning of the Good News. That was way back in Mark chapter 1. Today's message is going to sound much like a good Friday message. And when we consider the word good, especially as it relates to today's passage, we're faced with somewhat of a paradox. And the paradox is this. We, re we refer to the day that Christ was crucified as Good Friday. But really, it was anything but good in the sense that Christ suffered for us. So when we think of the traditional meaning of good, we go, wow, how could that have been so good? But because of his work on the cross, you and I were forgiven of our sins, and we no longer were separated from God. And so the effects of the cross were good for you and for me. When Jesus died on the cross, something supernatural happened, and we're going to talk about today. And it meant that we were no longer separated from God. And the barrier was broken between us and him. And we'll talk about that throughout this morning's message. So in your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15. I'll begin our passage by reading verses 21 to 24. So Mark 15, starting in verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. So we're told that a man named Simon was forced to carry the cross of Jesus to Calvary because Jesus could no longer carry it. You see, Jesus had been tortured, he was beaten, he was flogged, and he struggled under the weight of the cross. And so the Roman soldiers pulled a man out of the crowd a man named Simon. He was just passing by from North Africa 
on his way to Jerusalem when he was called to carry the cross of Jesus. He was forced to do it. Now, here's an interesting fact. Back then, there was actually a law, a Roman law, that allowed Roman soldiers to enforce something on just a passerby. And the law was this. A Roman soldier could call upon anybody, a citizen or a passerby, to carry a heavy object for up to a mile. So if you're just walking by, you could be called to serve as a porter. A porter would transport things on behalf of somebody else. That was an actual Roman law. Imagine carrying something heavy, like water jugs, for an entire mile. And that is hard work. Maybe you've heard the saying, go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. Well, guess what? Jesus said it first. You see, if we go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. When he said that, he was referring to this Roman law that stated that Roman soldiers could employ anybody off the street to carry something for up to a mile. And so Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So what did Jesus mean when he said that? Go with them two miles. The message is this, and the message is this for us today in the 21st century, because this applies to us as well. What Jesus was saying was this, if somebody calls on you to do something for them, and this thing might be difficult, Jesus calls us to go above and beyond. Jesus calls us to go the extra mile. And at times, this might even mean that the people around us, they might take advantage of our kindness. And if that happens, what Jesus is saying is extend extra grace to them. Not because they deserve it, but because we have received God's abundant grace. So how could we not do for someone what God has already done for us? And so Jesus says, go the extra mile. Now, let's go back to the scene. Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the cross. Now, we have no record of what went through Simon's mind as he's carrying the cross, but we know this much. And here's the amazing thing. Simon and his family members would eventually become Christ followers. How do we know that? Because in the book of Acts, the author of Acts, Luke, he includes Simon as one of the teachers at the church in Antioch. And we know something about Simon's wife. We don't know her name. Okay. We know their sons, Alexander and Rufus, but we know something about Simon's wife. You see, she 
was amongst the greatest supporters of missionaries. She just loved on missionaries. She was hospitable. She opened up their home to missionaries. She cared for missionaries. And her impact was so great on one particular missionary that this missionary wrote in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. He said this, and this missionary was none other than the Apostle Paul. And he writes to the Roman Christians and he says, Greet Rufus, right, the son of Simon, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. So make no mistake about it. It was no accident that Simon from Cyrene was divinely chosen to carry the cross of Jesus. It's amazing. And when Jesus arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine with myrrh. This was a narcotic. A narcotic which was basically uh, there to help ease the pain, to dull the senses of the crucifixion. But Jesus refused to take it. For two reasons. He refused this painkiller because, one, he wanted to make sure that he was in full control of his faculties when he went to the cross to do the will of God. And two, he chose not to drink the cup of sympathy. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to read to you verses 25 to 32, but I want to prep you ahead of time. As I read this section, I want you to compare two things. Compare the amount of time Mark spends talking about the crucifixion and the amount of time Mark talks about the ridicule that Jesus received. So compare those two things, the crucifixion itself and the ridicule that Jesus received. So we'll pick it up again in verse 25. It was nine in the morning. When they crucified him, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. But what's interesting is that Mark... He, he doesn't give us a detailed description of the crucifixion itself. He just simply says that they crucified him. The question is why? Why did Mark spend such little time detailing the crucifixion? It's because this. Those who were there and the original recipients of this gospel, they didn't have to be told the details. They'd experienced too many. They'd witnessed too many crucifixions. They knew the gruesome sight of a crucifixion. In fact, 
the very word crucifixion, it was rarely, if ever, used at that time because it was so extreme. They would try to soften it up. They would use words like penalty. And so those who read this and those who were there, they knew exactly what took place in a crucifixion. You know, today we look at the cross as a beautiful piece of art that we hang on the wall, beautiful piece of jewelry that we wear around our necks. But the crucifixion is a reminder that the cross at one time, it was a torture device. It was a torture device. And the picture was this. On the cross, the nails were driven right here in the wrist area in order to support the weight of the body. The arms were outstretched on the crossbeam. And what this would result in, as the criminal hung there, the shoulders would dislocate because of the weight. And with dislocated shoulders, what would happen is the lungs would open up. And every time the person on the cross tried to breathe, the body would lift up a bit causing excruciating pain. So with every breath, there was unimaginable pain. And yet Mark just says he was crucified. But then he goes on to talk at length about the ridicule that Jesus faced on the cross. And the reason why is, when Jesus hung on the cross for those six hours, the reason why Mark makes it a point to detail the ridicule is because not only was Jesus facing the ridicule of those who were there, every moment while on the cross, Jesus was bearing our guilt and shame. Every single moment, he was carrying our shame. You know, shame is one of the, the worst feelings a person can experience, isn't it? In some cultures, shame is the absolute worst thing a person can feel. And that's what Jesus experienced on the cross when he took our guilt and shame. In exchange, here's what we got. We got his righteousness. It's like the most unfair gift exchange in the history of the world, isn't it? He takes our shame. We get his righteousness. You know, Christmas is coming soon. We'll all go to our share of Christmas gift exchanges, and sometimes we'll drive home from the gift exchange thinking, wait a minute, I gave such a great gift. I put so much time and effort into my gift. I spent a lot of money. And what did I get in return? A used gift card with $3 on it? <laughs> so unfair. Sometimes we go home from a gift exchange thinking, so unfair. If that happens this Christmas, and it will happen, just recall this message. We exchanged our guilt and shame for the righteousness 
of Christ. The most unfair exchange in the history of the world. The cross puts all that into perspective. We read earlier that even those who hung next to Jesus on the cross, on their their crosses, they also hurled insults at Jesus. We often refer to them as thieves, right? The thief on the cross, the thieves on the cross. Well, did you know that crucifixions were not reserved for just thieves who stole a few dollars? Crucifixions were not there for uh, petty theft criminals. So these were not just thieves. In fact, we just read that they were rebels who did terrible things. Last week, we talked about Barabbas, didn't we? The insurrectionist. Pilate released Barabbas because he felt pressured by the people. Did you know that it's likely that those two who hung there next to Jesus, who were called rebels, that they were hanging for the very same reason that Barabbas was. And in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that one of them, one of these rebels, came to the realization that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. That he confessed, Lord, remember me. To which Jesus replied, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amazing. Even on the cross, Jesus was saving lives. Let's continue on in verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing nearby heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. At the end of those six hours, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God cries out to the Father, and it seems like he's questioning how he, the Father, could abandon him. Now, if we don't know the context of this cry, this can sound very troubling. And it's actually confused a lot of Christians over the years. How could God abandon his Son? But I hope that what I'm about to share with you will help put this cry into proper context. I'm going to show you a passage in just a minute from Psalm 22. I'm going to read to you the first verse in Psalm 22. And hopefully as we read this verse and I talk about Psalm 22, that it will put the cry of Jesus into proper context. 
Psalm 22 was a psalm written by David in a season of despair. And he cries out to God. And this is what King David writes in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. If you were to read on in this psalm, and it's a long psalm, it gets even more depressing. You find David in even greater despair as the psalm goes on and on, but then something amazing happens. In the final verses, David rejoices in the triumph of God. What begins as a lament, a cry, ends in confidence in God. So often, throughout his ministry, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, right? When he hung on the cross, and when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not random. Nothing Jesus did was random. Nothing he said was wasted breath or empty words. Jesus cried out in his suffering, And even as the people hurled insults at him, Jesus, and get this, Jesus would have the final word when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not thinking only of verse 1. Jesus, when he quoted David on the cross, he did this purposefully, deliberately, to proclaim to everybody around that the God who sent his son to die on our behalf would vindicate the righteous. So when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, those in the Jewish culture They would memorize that entire psalm. So no doubt, Jesus had the entire psalm memorized. And when they heard just those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew exactly what he was referring to. It was a cry of victory. Even in the midst of his suffering, Jesus declared victory. That's why he had the final say on the cross. And so with a loud cry, he took his final breath. And even that was not typical. Some criminals, they would stay on the cross for days until they died. And by the time they died, they had no breath, they had no energy, they had no voice. And yet Jesus cried out in a loud, miraculous, supernatural cry. It was a cry of victory. It gets even more amazing because look what happens in verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. When Jesus hung on the cross and he breathed his final breath, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now a curtain in the home, a window covering in an office building, it serves an important purpose. It's very functional. But it's also very symbolic. Curtains hold powerful symbolism. You see, because a closed curtain communicates something to the people on the other side. A closed curtain means stay away. Keep your distance. You're not welcome in here. It's like the, the blackout curtains in hotel rooms, right? Those are wonderful curtains. And those things are so effective. You, when you're on vacation and you're in a hotel room and you pull those heavy curtains at night and you go to sleep, in the morning, you have no idea what time it is because it's pitch black in your room. It could be 3 a.m. for all you know, or it could be like noon for all you know, and it looks like it's 3 a.m. Right? Those curtains in a hotel room, they communicate something very important to the morning sun. Those curtains say to the morning sun, Son, you're not welcome in here right now. These people are on vacation. They need their sleep. You're not welcome here. Stay away. You're too bright. Leave these people alone. So you sleep and sleep and sleep, and you wake up, and you think it's 3 a.m., but then you've missed the hotel's free breakfast. And so that's what happens. Because those curtains are powerful. And so when God in the Old Testament delivered his people out of Egypt, he had them build for him a tabernacle or a temple. And this temple would be the place where God's presence dwelt. So people would go to the temple to find God's presence and his forgiveness. But what was so ironic about the temple was every aspect of the physical temple, it screamed, stay away, keep your distance. So if you were a woman at that time or a Gentile, you could not go beyond a small area in the outer courts. You couldn't go beyond that. And then you had these steps leading up to the temple doors. Inside the temple, only the priests could enter. And they'd go to the holy place. But then the holy place was separated by a curtain. And behind the curtain was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And only one person can go inside the Holy of Holies. And only once a year, that was the high priest. And whenever the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he had to bring with him the blood of a goat. Because he would go there to make sacrifices. And on the Ark of the Covenant, which was housed in the holiest of holy places, there was a seat called the mercy seat. And the high priest would offer sacrifices on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sins. But the one thing that the high priest could never, ever do was this. As tired as he got, he could never look at that seat and sit down. The one thing he could never do was say, it is finished. But when Jesus hung on the cross, 
And when he breathed his last, the work was finished. The curtain, this four-inch thick curtain, was torn in two. Only an act of God could tear that curtain. And today, what that means for us is the curtain that had separated the people of God from God is no longer. And now we have access to God directly through our mediator, Jesus Christ. And today we rejoice because it means that our sins have been nailed to the cross. It is finished. The debt has been paid. And no matter how many mistakes we've made in our lives, and I have to believe this, if every one of us looked into the history of our lives, we could go back and think of shameful things that we've done. Shameful things that we've thought. And what Christ did on the cross was to take all that shame upon him. No matter how big we think we've messed up in our lives, and the reality is every one of us has messed up big time, no mess is too big for God. No mess is too big for God. For you parents who have little ones still in diapers, and for those of us who have uh, said goodbye to that stage, praise God, <laughs> you know this. A messy diaper, okay? Picture a messy diaper. The thing about the mess in a diaper is that the mess in the diaper doesn't stay in the diaper. The mess in the diaper likes to make its way up the back <laughs> and then around the sides. And then it likes to make its way inside the folds of the baby fat. We've all been there. Earlier this summer, a couple months ago, when we were on our way back from Hawaii on the airplane, Joanne and I were sitting next to each other. Our row had three seats, and then there's a stranger next to me. So Joanne, the window seat, me in the middle, and then gentleman on my right. Andrew and Amanda, we were separated, so they were in uh, rows above us, ahead of us. So we didn't see them. It was a full flight. The row in front of us, there was a dad and his son, who was probably not, not an infant, not a toddler, like early grade school maybe. And then there was a lady next to the dad, a stranger. Uh, the dad and his son, they were separated from their family. We would later find out that his wife and their two little kids, so it was a family of five. So the wife and two kids were in another row up ahead. So the dad was sitting there in the middle next to his young son. So the flight takes off, and uh, in the uh, airport, we had noticed that the boy was coughing a lot. We noticed that he was sick. And uh, so sure enough, he ended up sitting right in front of us. And so we're flying, and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, I smell something. <laughs> something that's very odd, something that's not pleasant. And I... And so then I look ahead to the row ahead of us, and then there's a lot of, like, you know, busy commotion going on. The boy, poor boy, was sick, and he vomited all over the entire row. 
Sadly, there was no barf bag. Shame on that airline. And so the boy vomited all over. And, you know, vomit gets, gets, it gets all over the place. So then we kept smelling, and we looked under, you know, under our feet, right? Because we store our bags. Yes. So it was over, it was all the, on the bags. It was everywhere. The flight attendant came over, and then here's the remarkable thing that happened. The lady sitting next to the dad, she's a stranger. She had every right to say, oh! She calmly and graciously went into action. And she started to clean up, assist the dad and the son. And then we in the back row and those around all gathered around saying, it's okay, it's okay. The flight attendant came over, gave us tons of wet wipes, antibacterial wipes, and, and spray uh, perfume or cologne or whatever it was. It did a good job. But I, I was just amazed. This lady sitting in the row next to this family, she, in the most gracious, patient manner, she just started to clean up. And I thought, wow. That's like God saying, no mess is too big for me. Imagine if God said, ooh! Imagine if God said, my airplane! And God had every right to do that to us. And yet on the cross, Jesus bore our mess. That's the gospel. No matter how much we think we've messed up in our lives, and we've messed up. Some of you right now, it's possible that you go to sleep at night carrying the shame every night. Something that you've done. Something you think is unforgivable. Something you've thought, said. If you are a child of God today, please know that Christ took that shame, as messy as it is, and he died for it. So we are no longer to live in that guilt and shame. It's paid for. We can't pay for it. It's too expensive for us to pay for. That's the victory of the cross. I want to continue on and read the final verses in our passage for today. Verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. 
Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought or bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark makes it a point to tell us that some women watched from a distance. You see, unlike the disciples, these women didn't vanish from the scene. Imagine the guilt and shame that the disciples felt later on, having abandoned Jesus. But remember, Jesus said that they would all fail him, right? He said that they would abandon him. But these women, out of respect for Jesus, they went back, and from a distance, they respectfully observed Jesus on the cross, hanging. Now, I have to imagine that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, I have to imagine he was thinking about his disciples. Earlier in our series, we learned that James and John approached Jesus and they asked him for the seats of honor next to him in his kingdom. Lord, grant us the seats next to you, one on your right, one on your left. And there was Jesus hanging beside two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So I imagine Jesus was thinking about James and John. And now imagine he was thinking about Peter, who just hours before disowned him three times. All the disciples failed Jesus. And yet God, here's the amazing thing, God would ultimately use these disciples to carry out the mission of their Savior. If that doesn't give us hope, I don't know what will. The very disciples who abandoned Jesus would eventually suffer for him and even die for him. Now, next week, we're going to wrap up our series. We'll look at the resurrection. But I want to make sure that we understand today, understand Mark's intention in presenting the gospel the way he did. You see, the reason why we went from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16, from cover to cover, the reason is this. We want to see that Mark had a deliberate intention in presenting the gospel the way he did. In this gospel, Jesus is he's presented as servant king. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. He didn't fight for his rights, he laid down his rights. He didn't defend himself when he had every right to do so. He did that all for us, but also he did it all so that we would follow his example. That's the practical nature of the gospel of Mark. Way back at the beginning of our series, I gave you a takeaway for the gospel of Mark. Way back in sermon number one, I gave you the takeaway at the beginning of the series. 
So I'm going to remind you of that takeaway. The takeaway is this. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. And the way that we can apply this takeaway throughout this coming week is very simple and it's very practical. Here's your takeaway practical application for this week. Go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. When we have the opportunity to do something for someone else, if someone requests a favor from us, don't do the bare minimum. <laughs> Surprise them and go the extra mile. And even if that person doesn't ask something from you, surprise them and go the extra mile. Now, I'm going to get very practical here. If you see dishes in the sink and you think to yourself, whose are these? Just quietly go the extra mile and wash them for the person. That might be the hardest thing we'll ever do this week. <laughs> if somebody says something insensitive to you and hurts you, and hurts you deeply, go the extra mile, forgive that person, show grace, and do not even the score. It's the hardest thing we're going to do this week. It's the hardest thing. True greatness. And we all want to be great, right? We all want to be great. I don't know too many people who want to be mediocre. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. And if you don't think that you have the ability and the strength to go the extra mile this week, Come out tomorrow at 6 a.m. And, and gain that strength, all right? Come out tomorrow. I would love to see you here tomorrow at 6 a.m. If you can't make it tomorrow, come Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We'll be here, 6 a.m. Come out Friday night at 7 p.m. And I believe with all confidence, and I wouldn't say this if I didn't believe it, I believe with all confidence that come Friday evening at around 8.15, 8.30, we will look back on this week and we will have experienced the power of God in ways that we could not even imagine today. I wholeheartedly believe that. Come out, come together, church family, and see what God can do. Let's pray. Father, this week when faced with difficulty, when faced with people around us who are impatient, insensitive, ungrateful, remind us of today's passage. Help us to go the extra mile. Help us to do for others what you have already done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. Thank you for the victory of the cross. We thank you. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.